Yeah, so this has been in the making for a long time, and ever since uh, my first year at UConn, I've heard about this church, St. Paul's, and there's always been a handful of students in my ministry that have attended church here. I've gotten to know Spring back there in the back row. If you guys don't know Spring already, you really got to get to know Spring. She's incredible. And uh, anyway, so it's been a delight. It's been, it's a real delight now to finally, after seven or eight years, have the opportunity to come uh, be with you. And uh, yeah, happy Father's Day. I know that, uh, I think it's the tendency of our culture to celebrate mothers on Father's Day and kind of like tell dads how they could do better on, uh, mothers on Mother's Day and tell dads how they can do better on Father's Day. So I'll just say, Praise God for great dads, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I am going to continue. Uh, Ryan told me that you guys have been going through the series on the book of Acts, uh, focusing specifically on what we can learn from the dramatic scenes in Acts. And our text that we're going to look at today is a really dramatic moment, and I want to give you the setup for it before we read it. I'm going to be preaching from Acts chapter 20. And uh, I'm going to be starting in verse 13. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, Acts has been following the Apostle Paul uh, from the moment when he was an enemy of Christianity, seeking to put an end to the church, uh, to when he's transformed when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his whole life changes. And Paul uh, becomes the first missionary I know when we think about missionaries, missionaries are very common today in the church and in the Christian world, but missionaries did not exist before Paul. Uh, So it's really crazy that Paul would devote his life to going on these journeys around the known world to establish churches. And one such journey, his second journey, he went to Ephesus and preached in a synagogue there. And uh, he had to move on, but they begged him, please come back. And so on his third journey, he actually spends three years in this major city, this important city, Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And amazing things happen. The church grows, but there's also intense opposition during his time there. And after he spends three years there, he uh, moves on to Greece and preaches the gospel in places like Athens and Thessalonica and establishes churches there. And then on his way back, he's heading back to Jerusalem. Uh, He's going to face trial in Jerusalem, ultimately. And he decides to make a kind of swing by this church in Ephesus. And he stops at this place called Miletus, uh, just, you know, a a day or two's walk from Ephesus uh, so that he can give some final parting words. And as we find out, this will be the last time that these church leaders will see Paul. And so that's the setup. And let me read our text for us now. Acts 20, starting in verse 13. If I can find it. There it is. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, 
you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, knowing what will happen to me there. Knowing not, what will hap- not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, Let's pray again briefly. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we ask that you would be with us. Uh, that you would apply the word to our hearts and make us different. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm a pretty big Star Wars fan. Are there any Star Wars fans in the room? There's three, four. Great. Um, Star Wars. uh, When I read this text and spent uh, the last week or two kind of meditating on this text, I immediately thought of the very first Star Wars movie ever made, episode four, when there's this moment near the end of that movie where Luke Skywalker and his companions are trying to escape on the Millennium Falcon, and while, while they're escaping, Luke Skywalker looks back and he sees the duel between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, his mentor. And they're doing the lightsaber battle, and it's, you know, it's going on for a little while, and there's this point in the battle where Obi-Wan Kenobi, the mentor, looks over at Luke, and he gives him this knowing look as almost to say, like, you're ready now. I'm passing this on to you. And then he holds his lightsaber up like this, and Darth Vader strikes him down. 
And Luke, there's this cry of anguish from Luke Skywalker, right? No! But he has to escape. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of like a picture of what's going on in this text. Uh, because, you know, put yourself in the place of these men that are now in charge of leading this church. You know, it's one thing for Luke Skywalker to be on this crazy mission, uh, knowing that he has this mentor who knows what he's doing, right? But it's another thing to now be the one in charge, uh, now, think about Paul and these men. Paul's been pouring into these men for three years. Uh, Paul, like, he's invested tons of time with them, and now he's leaving, and we know that he's eventually going to die for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men are never going to see him again. Uh, Paul started this church. Uh, it grew with Paul. Paul was with them when they faced intense opposition and we know that there's going to be persecutions ahead. And so the question that would be looming in the minds of all of Paul's hearers in this passage that we just read is, how can, how can we endure without Paul? How can this church endure without Paul? Paul was the man. Paul was like, you know, this church is named after Paul. And he lived 2,000 years ago, 10,000 miles away. That's how much the man, Paul, you know, you want Paul helping lead your church, right? Um, this is a man who saw Jesus face to face and was transformed. This is an amazing teacher. This was, you know, you wanted him with you. And so how will this church endure without Paul? And, you know, for us, we can kind of zoom out and say, how will this church endure today? There's plenty of obstacles, right? We live in Connecticut, a place where no one seems to really care too much about church. Uh, we live at a time where the existence of God is denied by many, uh, where Christians are thought of as at best kind of fools and at worst a threat, you know, uh, danger to society. And so that's, you know, what we're working with for this church. But zoom out even more and you can ask the question, how will you endure? We live in a world that's very precarious, do we not? Uh, there's plenty of people that fall away from faith in Christ. Temptations abound, and it seems like it's going to be harder as the years go by to be a Christian than easier. Uh, and then you add in all the trials of life, all the things that make life difficult. And so how will we endure? And what Paul gives these men and what he ultimately gives us is uh, a blueprint not only to endure, but to thrive as God's servants in this world and as leaders in his church. And what he gives us is two pretty simple things. He says, one, pay careful attention. And two, he says, cling to God and his grace. And so that's, we're just going to look at those two things today. Pay careful attention and cling to God and his grace. And so the first one is pay careful attention. And he actually said, in verse 28, he says that. He says, pay careful attention. And in verse 31, he says, be alert. Like he's trying to hammer this home. Uh, I've lived in Connecticut for seven years now. Uh, never lived in a place as densely forested as Connecticut before. Uh, and prior to living here, I lived in like apartments and stuff, so I was never responsible for any land of my own. And uh, so these last seven years have been kind of a crash course in like tending to property. And I live on a pretty big property, didn't have a clue what I was doing. And one thing that has amazed me and surprised me so much about this place, Connecticut, is like how quickly, if you don't tend to like a portion of land, 
it becomes a forest, right? Like instantly, like, and the, like the vines around here are crazy. And there have been times where I've like cleared a little like area thinking like, oh, I'll plant something here soon and like gone on vacation for two weeks and come back and it's just like, why did I even clear? Like there's a forest growing right here. Um, and what I've learned is that if you don't tend land around here, it will become a forest quickly. If you've ever worked with land here, you know that that's true. Uh, And what Paul is trying to teach these men is that if you don't tend to yourself and your church, disaster will ensue quickly. It will happen quick. Uh, Another way of saying that is you can't coast. Uh, Coasting is something that we all kind of crave, do we not? Like when life is hard and you think like, oh, I wish I could just coast for a while. Uh, It's what we're all tempted to do. But with the most important things in life, with the greatest things in life, you know that you can't coast. Uh, think about marriage. You know, marriage is a great thing in life. And if you've been married for, you know, Ryan will learn this like tomorrow. You can't, you cannot coast. Like, if you want to have a good marriage anyway, you cannot coast. Marriage, you know, takes work, right? Uh, you have to be intentional about your marriage. Another one is parenting, right? I'm a young parent. I have two young kids. Uh, my wife and kids are both are. They're all homesick. Uh, with colds this morning and couldn't be here, but it made me think of that. There's like a, I think it's like a Dayquil commercial or something like that where the parent is like begging their toddler for a day off. And it's like, you know, I can't come in today. I'm not feeling good. And the, kind of the point of the commercial is there's no days off for a parent. Like, you don't get a day off. You can't coast. Um, I'm a basketball fan. Anybody here a basketball fan in BA? Um, yeah, if you followed basketball this year, you know that there was one team that was supposed to win from day one, the Golden State Warriors, and they won. And everyone expected it. And, but at the end, after they won, you know, everyone's asking them, like, was this easy? Because you guys were, everyone thought you were going to win. And they kept saying, no, like, we didn't coast. This was really hard. Like, you guys have no idea how hard it is, even if you have what we have to win. Like, it's hard. You can't coast. And the reason you can't coast is because we live in a precarious world. Uh, The Bible goes so far to say that there are powers at work in our world to thwart the advancement of the church, to thwart Christians as they seek to follow Jesus. And what Paul kind of soberingly teaches these men here is that it's not just that the world's out there, but that the world is in here too. Uh, you know, he, he, it's a sobering idea. He said, there's going to come fierce wolves. And by the way, you might be the wolf too. And so that's why Paul deliberately mentions all the time he spent with them. He's, you know, giving them all the truth from God's word. Three years, I just, day in and day out with tears, told you about God's grace and I, the whole counsel of God. He's hammering this home. And it's a way of saying the truth is really important. Like, you need to be really careful about the truth. It's three years' worth of me every day telling you it. Important. And I've given you the truth now. Uh, And it's a life... Like, did you think it was weird when he said, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you? It's a way of saying, this is life or death. He's like, "I've I've given you what you need to live. So cling to it. Be watchful that people don't distort it. Uh, And it will happen if you're not careful. Uh, The truth matters. Doctrine matters. God's word matters. And the reason, you know, 
Think about how this happens. It happens really subtly in churches where like churches go from being like super welcoming to lots of people to kind of becoming clubs, right? That don't really focus as much on outsiders anymore. I heard this quote from uh, Archbishop William Temple. He once observed uh, that the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. It's an amazing picture of what the church should be, right? It should be about like reaching out to everyone. And like tons of churches have taken on this vision of we're going to be the churches that reach out and welcome people. And you know, that fades away really quick in churches. It just does. Um, you know, different ideas creep into churches. People that used to serve become tired and bitter over time. There's all these ways that this happens. And you know, it's in our history in New England, right? Like churches used to be like thriving in New England. And that's not really the case anymore, is it? And what happened? People stopped paying attention. So how, how do you know if you're in danger? How do you know if this is something that may be going on with you? Uh, I have a couple ways. First, if you never hear anything you don't like at church, in the books you read, in the parts of the Bible that you turn to, among the people who influence you, if you're never hearing teaching where when you first hear it, you're like, oh, I don't like that. That offends me. That challenges me. Because what we're dealing with is a holy God. And if we're really encountering God, then what should be happening is, you know, sparks should be flying. We should, we should be coming against truth that says, I, I want to resist that. I don't like that. And if all you're hearing is, yeah, I like that, I like that, I agree, I agree, I agree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it might be a sign that maybe you're not following the real God. It might be a sign that maybe you're following yourself. Um, Another way of knowing if you're in danger uh, is if you no longer think you need to grow. If you're a person, you know, Paul thought he needed to grow. So if you're a person, if you come to church and think, yeah, I know that, I know that, I'm good, I'm good, uh, it might be a sign that this might be going on with you, that you might need to be careful, that you might need to keep watch. Uh, another way that we see this happening is cynicism. And Paul anticipates cynicism in this passage. Another thing that kind of struck me as weird in this passage when I first read it is he said, I covet, coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And, you know, but what he's anticipating is that, you know, maybe a couple of years go by, Paul's been gone and people start to kind of forget and they start saying, yeah, Paul was just, he was probably just in it for the money, right? This wasn't, this wasn't important. Like we can kind of forget about some of this stuff. And, you know, cynicism today is one of the worst blights on Christians and in the church, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, Christianity, it was something that was important to me when I was young, you know, I found hope in it, uh, but now I know that it's kind of a fairy tale. You can't hope, you know, or uh, I'm kind of too sophisticated now to make my whole life Jesus. Um, and so there's all these lies that are tempting to believe. And, you know, there's all these outside ideas from our culture that seep into the church. Ideas like, you know, God wouldn't want Christians to suffer that much, though. You know, you shouldn't be suffering that much. And it's like, really? Because it seems like Paul, it seems like he's going to die. Or, you know, the best thing to do is follow your heart. Ever heard that one? It's like the worst piece of advice. You, it sounds like kind of good, right? Like it's, to our ears, it doesn't sound that bad. I saw someone, I saw a t-shirt recently that said, be you, do you, for you. It's like, that is the worst <laughs> advice. And like biblically, like that's the worst shirt, right? And it doesn't even seem 
You know, it, ideas like that can subtly kind of creep into our minds and hearts and subtly creep in to our churches. And the stakes are really high. So if the stakes are so high and the danger is so great, how do we do it then? How do we tend? How do we be careful? How do we tend to our hearts and the hearts of others around us? How do we pay careful attention? And the answer that Paul gives is that we cling to God and his grace. We cling to God and the word of his grace. As he says in verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Uh, How do you stay close to God? Be immersed in his word. Be saturated in the gospel, the word which is the story of his grace. Uh, God will be with you, in other words, as you cling to his grace. Um, Verse 32 goes on to say that the word of his grace is able to build us up. Think about that. How, How does that happen? Because it reminds us who we are. If you're a Christian here today, I know not everyone in the room may be a Christian, but if you're a Christian, I wonder, have you forgotten who you are? And there's a hint of it in this passage. You're a sheep. He's talking about the flock. And I don't know what vision comes into your mind when you think about a sheep. You know, I think a lot of times we think of like the cuddly little lamb that you can kind of nuzzle up to. But, you know, that's not really the biblical image of sheep at all. One author puts it this way. He says, sheep are dirty, subject to unpleasant pests, and regularly need to be dipped in strong chemicals to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. They are also unintelligent, wayward, and obstinate. And if that were the end, right, that would be like kind of depressing news, right? Let's all, let's pray and go, right? No. Um, The good news is that there is a God who happens to be a shepherd, and he loves sheep, Our God loves sheep. Sheep are precious to him. And he doesn't care how unintelligent or how wayward or how obstinate they are or how dirty they are. He gives up everything. The gospel tells us he has given up everything to come and be with them. And if you've trusted in him, then you belong to him now. In other words, you are precious to him today. Uh, I have a good friend uh, who... Him and his wife have three uh, biological children, and now they're in the process of adopting their third uh, child. So their sixth total child, their third adoption. And uh, when they were adopting their first child several years ago, I was living, we were both living in St. Louis, and uh, they were adopting from Uganda, a little boy named Judah, who had been abandoned in a taxi cab in Uganda, and then subsequently brought to an orphanage, and they saw his picture, and they said, we have to have him. And so it took several trips back and forth to Uganda, times when they might have to go, and they thought there was a court date, but uh, the judge didn't feel like coming that day, so they have to wait like a week extra to see if they can get their kid, and it didn't happen, so you know, maybe come back to Uganda a few weeks later and see if it's going to happen this time. And uh, finally, they were able to get it to work. You know, the legal system worked, and they got their boy, and they arranged for someone who worked at the orphanage to kind of to fly their boy to St. Louis uh, so that they wouldn't have to do the trip again. And so uh, my friend and his wife, and they decided, like, they want, we want this to be the most memorable day for our son. Like, we want to have pictures of this day. We want him to remember the day that we got him. And so they invited all their friends to the airport, to the terminal, 
Uh, there were signs, like streamers, balloons, kids singing and dancing. And like, there's this crowd of people waiting for Judah to get off the plane. And meanwhile, there's this secondary crowd forming, like, who's about to get off this plane? Is it Justin Timberlake? Like, who is coming? And then who comes out? A little orphan boy from Uganda who was abandoned in a taxi cab. And the place erupts celebration. The parents melt as they hold their child in their arms for the first time as their own. Okay, well, you, if you're a Christian, you need to hear me here because Judah's story is your story. That's what God's grace does for us. You're not so-and-so the failure anymore. You're not so-and-so the one that nobody would want if they really knew. You are now so-and-so the beloved. And it means you're not defined by the mistakes you've made, whether those mistakes were 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago. You're defined by your Savior. You're defined by the one you turn to, the one you lean on when you fail. And that should give us tons of confidence, right? That should give us tons of courage to step out. And it should also make us quick to repent, right? Being a Christian is not about getting it right every single time. It's about being quick to repent when we get it wrong. Uh, Quick to turn back to Jesus when we realize that we have wandered away. It means that when God places a trial in your life, when something hard is going on, it cannot be because God has forgotten you. It cannot be because he doesn't care about you. It has to be because somehow, some way, when it's all said and done, it will work out for your good because parents don't just go to Uganda to get a kid and then kind of forget about them a couple years later. And God doesn't lay down his life for his children and then forget about them a couple years later. You see how God's grace builds us up. Uh, You see how it can strengthen our trust in him, not by telling us how great we are, but by reminding us of his love for his people, reminding us how great he is. And the second part of that, it's able to build us up, and it's able to give us the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Uh, You know, it builds us up in the present, and it also gets us looking toward the future, toward our inheritance. Uh, a few years ago, do you guys remember when the Powerball craze was happening a few years ago? I guess there have been a couple lately, but there was just one, I think it was like four years ago when uh, it, the jackpot was up to like a billion dollars and there was this week where like, it was in January, I know, because my wife's birthday was around that time and everyone was, like I went to the dentist and the whole dentist's office was like, did you get a ticket? Like, this, this, we have a pool, like we're putting our money together and getting tickets, and, which is really stupid, right? But uh, my wife's birthday was coming up, and so kind of as a joke, I was like, I'm just going to buy a Powerball ticket. Never bought a lottery ticket in my life. I think it's the worst thing to spend any money on. But, uh, you know, I'm ashamed to say that when I was driving home with that lotto ticket sitting on my passenger seat that I was going to give to my wife as a joke, that I kind of came under its power almost instantly. And my mind got to thinking about, well, like, what if we do win, you know? I did not win, by the way. Uh, but what if we do win? Maybe, you know, what houses would we buy? It's like a billion dollars, you know? Um, do you see how 
the possibility, even that, that was a possibility of an inheritance. You see how the sure inheritance that we have may affect the way that we live today. Uh, the gospel of grace is able to give us the inheritance, Paul says, among those who are sanctified. Uh, that's a fan- san- sanctified is a fancy way of saying made holy. In other words, what he's saying is that the gospel tells us, even though you're just a sheep, there's a place for you among the holy ones who dwell in God's presence and help him rule the universe for eternity. That's your inheritance. Uh, a few years ago, I got to get my, I have four friends from college that I get together with every year or two for some trip, and we decided to go back to our school for a college basketball game. And so we met up, and my, I had this one friend who was in charge of the tickets, and he's like kind of connected to our university a little more than the rest of us, and so he, he was like, let me get the tickets. And uh, so we went to the stadium all together that day, and uh, he got our tickets, and it was, it was not just any ticket. Like, this had like a lanyard, and it was this like pass, and on the pass it said, Moracle Society. I was like, what the heck is the Moracle Society? I thought we were going to a basketball game. And so we go in, and what I found out is the Moracle Society is the lounge where like all the high rollers go and like eat food and have drinks before the game and halftime. And the president of the university is there and the football coach is there. And there happens to be this guy there who just donated $5 million to the university. And uh, so at halftime, we go in there and uh, we walk in the door and they, there's a guy handing us glasses of champagne as we walk in. And we're given a toast to this guy who donated $5 million to the university. I'm sitting there in my t-shirt, like not knowing what is going on, uh, but so happy to be there, right? Because I didn't belong there. Like I'm in my t-shirt. I don't even know what this is exactly. But my ticket says Moracle Society on there. And so I do belong there. No one could kick me out. Okay. The kingdom of God is like that. You know, you don't belong. You're just a sheep. But you do belong because God loves sheep. And also, not to mention, you've been bought with the blood of Christ. You know, we don't have the inheritance fully yet, but we have enough to start on. We have enough to live our lives today like we do uh, because Jesus rose from the dead and we have been bought with his blood. Jesus lost everything so that we could have everything. And what does he get out of it? Us. Like, he did it because he wanted you and me. Now, what more could you possibly want, I wonder? Uh, If that's your inheritance, if that's the truth you cling to, if that's your story, then you can start making your life about giving it away. You can start, you know, Paul at the end mentions, this is all about helping the weak. And if that's your inheritance, then you can help the weak. You know, he ends by saying, blessed, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You can make your life more about giving than receiving if that's what your inheritance is, if that's what your hope is, if that's the center of your life. Uh, I think about Jim Elliott, the famous missionary to Ecuador, uh, the American missionary who uh, made it his life's mission to bring the gospel to this people that lived in the jungles of Ecuador. It cost him his life. They killed him. 
And in his journal, it was found that he had written this. He wrote, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He got it, right? He knew where his inheritance was. And so he gave. He served. Now, I want to bring it back home to us here. How can you do that? How can you trust? What is, what's the proof that this isn't just a fancy idea or something? And what you need to see is the proof is Paul. Paul was the worst. He hated Christians. He wanted to have them killed. You know, if, if you think you're bad, you're, you're not as bad as Paul was. But then Paul met Jesus. And what he found out is that Jesus is the God of grace. Jesus shows us the God of grace. He met him as the gracious one, and it changed him forever. Because Jesus had every right to strike Paul down in that moment and say, you are my enemy. Be struck down. I, but instead, Jesus says, I died to have you. And I want to use you to bring my grace to the world. And so Paul gave his life away, just like he's doing in our text. As we read. He's in the process of giving his life away, gladly. Did you notice how he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem? He knows he's going to get arrested, and he's in a hurry to get there because he was transformed by grace. And now we're invited to give our lives away. We're invited to watch carefully and to cling to God and his grace as we give our lives away. Uh, let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, uh, you know our hearts, you know everything about us, all the things that, uh, all the ways we wander from you like sheep, all the things that uh, make us unworthy of you, and so we are so grateful that you want us, that you sent Christ to be our Savior, and that we have life now. And we pray that that grace would build us up. We pray that uh, we would know that inheritance among the ones who are sanctified and that we would be transformed to live lives of service uh, of your church and your kingdom. Uh, we pray that you would work that transformation in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.